Welcome to Pale Blue Pod, the astronomy podcast for people who are overwhelmed by the universe but still want to be its friend. It's true. And I'm Craig Caputo, a writer and a funny person and a friend to the universe. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in this new year of ours. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Dr. Moya McTeer. I'm an astrophysicist and a folklorist and also a friend to the universe. The universe mm-hmm. and I, we party together all the time. I know. I, your New Year's party looked amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, we're actually recording this episode on New Year's Day, listeners, the, the very first day of 2024. And we are, you know, we we went out last night. I'm not going to lie. We're a little bit worse for wear. We are recording <laughs> this episode outside of, of a discotheque. We're, we're, yeah, we, we decided, why bother going home? Let's why? just stay where we are. Yeah, and you know, like they're still partying inside. We can still hear like the bass is is pretty impressive. Yes. Um, there are people taking photos. Um, it's it's a lively scene, and what better place and time to talk about something equally exciting? Oh yeah. Today, listeners, we're talking about the history of planetariums. Woo! We're talking about planetariums at the disco. <laughs> That's really fun. This is the perfect spot. Because planetariums are so fun. They really are. Yeah. Corinne, have, did you spend much time in I, planetariums growing up? I definitely went to um, the Museum of Natural History's, like, a show at, mm-hmm. in their, if that even counts. The Hayden. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the big one. Um, <laughs> and we had a small planetarium at the Space Center I worked at, which I I sat in on classes like a handful of times, but um, I didn't run any of it. But it was that one was really cool because it was very intimate. Like you fit one class in there, Max. Um, one of my coworkers, Zohar, who I think listens to the pod, um, really kind of owned the planetarium project and was always kind of discovering new things that it could do and, and what we could show students. And it was really fun to, to see and play around in there. Oh, nice. I loved it. Yeah. I did get worried about getting stuck in it because <laughs> it was like inflatable. So I was like, oh. what if I were to get stuck inside of this. Yeah, and it just collapsed, like deflated yeah. on you. I mean, the floor was, <laughs> I easily could have escaped. It really was not hard <laughs> to escape. <laughs> but obviously in my head, I'm like, this is a scenario where I'm the person who gets stuck in here and dies. Right, right. And uh, well, maybe you don't die, but your ego certainly does. Exactly. I was like, the 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 me like, wiggling my way out of it is going to be humiliating. So. Right. Right. The the initial terror of you being trapped in there and everyone's like, it's so easy. Like, yes. why are you struggling that hard? Exactly. And then you have to wiggle out. No. Humiliating. Knowing that I can't play it cool. But yeah, I love them. I think they're great. I think I will get motion sick if I stay inside one too long, but mm. super, super cool. Uh, yeah, they are modern marvels. People have been inspired by planetaria. Uh, several of my colleagues in astronomy have known that they wanted to go into this field since they were small children because they went to a planetarium show with one of their parents um, or, or, or a yes. caretaker. And so they really are, oh, what's, there's a word that I'm, I'm looking for, like emissaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like they, they go out and they do the good work of getting people to fall in love with the night sky. Yeah. And even if those people don't grow up to become professional astrophysicists, that's fine. They have still gotten closer to the universe. And yeah. we here at Pale Blue Pot are big f- proponents of anything that can get people closer to the universe. 
that's a good way to put it. They're the influencers of the industry. <laughs> yes, the influencers. Yeah, next week I'm going to an astronomy conference, and there's actually a session planned for astronomy influencers. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm really excited to go and, and meet everyone. So there, there are... There are human astronomy influencers, and then there are mechanical astronomy influencers, i.e. planetariums. Exactly. Oh, how do you feel about planetariums versus planetaria? I did not know planetaria was a word. Okay. I thought it was, um, not that it couldn't be a word, but that it would refer to some kind of, I don't know, ancient practice. And planetariums immediately <laughs> makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. It's just like the difference in how I think Latin words are yeah. pluralized versus. Um, Famously, I failed Latin, but I was the vice president of the Latin club, so. <laughs> really makes me wonder about the criteria for being. That was because I started it. <laughs> that was because mm. I started the Latin language club because I needed um, clubs for my college application. And I was like, I nice. know that I should not be the president of this club despite <laughs> starting it, so I'm going to be the VP. <laughs> <laughs> I really admire that self-awareness, Corinne. Yeah, Good I've always you. been cool. I've always been playing it cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so whatever you call them, planetariums, planetary, uh, they have a long history if you are very generous with the interpretation of that word. Um, so going back to the earliest star maps, um, because you have to have a, a map of stars before you can present them to people in a planetarium. Sure. Going going back to the first time that people were writing down or or recording the positions of stars, we we actually can't find the first occurrence of that. People were looking at the night sky for thousands of years. We see that in uh, the Lascaux caves in France um, mm. that have pictures that look like constellations. We see that on the Nebra sky disk that looks like the moon with some other stars nearby. We even see that with the mammoth tusk that has Orion on it. Both Mm -hmm. of those are from Germany and these are ancient, I'm talking like 10,000 year old plus um, artifacts that tell us that people were like carefully marking the positions of, of stars. But there's a difference between like those those small artifacts and a, a large star map, like a concerted sure. systematic effort to mark down the precise locations of stars in the sky, or at least as yeah. precise as they could be before they had telescopes and, and computers to like track those locations. Yeah, of course. It's like me doodling my neighborhood versus like making sure I can get somebody to the grocery store if they needed it. Yeah, yeah. But, like, the first step is still very important. Yeah. And so if we want to look at the first, like, concerted effort to make a map of the sky, we look to our ancient Greek buddy, Hipparchus. I don't think we've talked much about Hipparchus, and uh, we don't really know enough about his personal life to do a whole bio episode on him. But he was a a Greek astronomer back in the time before, like, science was even a thing. Mm -hmm. He was a natural philosopher who was really good at observing the world around him and coming up with logical explanations for what he saw. Uh, He lived between, we think, uh, 190 and 120 BCE. 70 years is probably a a pretty good lifespan back then. And he is said to be the first person to use two-dimensional coordinates to locate the stars. And he was the first to map the whole sky, people said. But then for a long time, we couldn't find his star maps. We had catalogs, huh. um, we couldn't, but we couldn't find his maps. And he had a student named Ptolemy who 
ha- made his own maps and we assumed that he just copied his teachers. But recently, I want to say in 2013, they found parts of Hipparchus's sky map just randomly in a Christian text called the Codex Clemassi Rescriptus. It was just like Hipparchus's stuff, <gasps> like killing in a Christian text. Like it was like on a loose sheet of paper left in the book, or it was like printed yeah. in the book. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. Like some, it had been, it had been passed down and then made it into this book, and then was discovered in 2013. Wow, that's so fun and cool. Yeah, and we from that we were able to tell that Ptolemy didn't just copy Hipparchus's stuff. There were there were differences in them, which kind of re-legitimized both of them as yeah. individual scientists. Oh my god! Fascinating. For some reason, that made me nervous. I'm like, oh my god, what if I found that book and I accidentally threw those papers away? <laughs> <laughs> Thank God it wasn't me. <laughs> Thank God it wasn't you, just in the basement of the Strand, like yeah. finding something in an old book. <laughs> Immediately, this story's about me and how I would have messed this up. <laughs> uh, but that—that's the first lesson, or one of the first lessons you should learn in reading any sort of fantasy book. Like, don't. If you come across something very old in a book, mm-hmm. don't throw it away. Don't throw it away. Although I do, I would love finding like a piece of paper in a used book. Like, ooh, oh. what, what kind of, you know, look into this person's life am I getting? Yeah. The secrets. Yes. I wish yeah, that happened to me more. Secrets. This is the year we leave notes in books. <laughs> oh, you know what? Pale Blue Pod listeners, we would not be mad at you if you just I started leaving notes in books. In places for people to find later, just leave a little space fact in there or something. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Whatever you learned this week. <laughs> That'd be so cute. Okay, I didn't want to replace that because the whole interaction was just so cute, and I really do want you to start leaving notes in books. That just seems like a very cool thing we can start doing in 2024. However, I did get some details wrong in that story. That's okay. That's why I fact check. Uh, So you're seeing a bit of the behind the scenes process here. But uh, this whole story about Hipparchus's star map, it was discovered in, uh, well, this answer was discovered in 2022, not 2013. And it was not that a piece of the star map was just tucked in between pages of this Christian text. It was actually a palimpsest. And for archival nerds, for history manuscript nerds out there, you will know what a palimpsest is. Uh, for anyone who has read Deborah Harkness's uh, Discovery of Witches, you will know what a palimpsest is, which is why I'm getting so excited if you can't hear it in my voice. A palimpsest is this thing that used to happen when paper was not as cheap as it is now, where you would reuse paper um, where you would write over, you would like try to remove old text or you would just write over old text. But that's what this was. They had used some of Hipparchus's star map and, and the text was gone or faded and then written over it with this Christian text. And in order to find out what the writing was beneath the Christian text, scientists today in 2022 had to use spectral analysis. They had to use astronomy-based methods to find this ancient star map, which is just so poetic. It's so right. Um, and I just needed to come in and, and give that little correction. Okay, let's let's get back to it. Um, Hipparchus did, did other cool things too. He also discovered and calculated the precession of the Earth's axis. And he modeled the orbit of the moon. Cool. Mm-hmm. 
And he had a very successful telescope and uh, star survey named after him, the Hipparchus satellite or like the Hipparchus catalog of stars up until uh, the last decade was the most precise map of stars in the Milky Way galaxy that we had. But now uh, that honor belongs to Gaia and we will absolutely be doing an episode on the Gaia spacecraft. Yay. Because I love it so much. I used it in my dissertation, although it did make me cry several times. (gasps) I cry so easily. I am so leaky. Oh my God, same. So those were early star maps, which is a necessary thing to have in place in society before you can make planetariums. And I said earlier in the episode that you have to have a broad interpretation of the word planetarium, because when the word was first used, it originally meant any device that showed the movement of planets in the sky. And medieval astronomers were much more interested in the wandering stars, the planets and the moon and the sun, than they were in the more distant fixed stars. So they really were just focusing on the planets for a long time which means that the early planetariums were just oreries, like that big thing that we Mm -hmm. recorded the Caroline Herschel episode. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And there are so many beautiful examples of oreries online if you want to go and look up different historical ones. Um, There's this ancient Greek device called the Antikythera machine uh, or the Antikythera mechanism. And scholars think that it was made between sometime between 60 and 200 BCE, which is before they thought it was possible for them to make something like this. And it's kind of big, I'd say like, I don't know, a square foot or two. And it has all of these different gears that move together. And we now think that it was a device meant to predict the location of the planets and the moon along the ecliptic. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it would have been made in a time when they still believed that the Earth was the center of the universe. And uh, there, there were a lot of issues matching up the observed motion of the planets with that theory, mm-hmm. because sometimes the planets moved backwards and, and sometimes they switched positions and it was really confusing. But this device tried to incorporate all of the different explanations they had for those weirdnesses in the observation uh, into this machine so that you could predict where things would be ahead of time. Cool. Um, That was an early planetarium. Another early prototype of a planetarium that we would actually recognize as a planetarium today was, I I don't know if it had a name, but um, Arab craftspeople would poke holes in the tops of tents um, or in the sides of tents and then would spin the tents around to replicate the movement of the stars. And that uh, device or that piece of technology was brought back to Europe during the Crusades in 1229. And that just seems like a very cool cool thing to experience. Like people, they would physically move the tent around whoever was inside it. Well, now we have those like little domes you can buy for like a kid's room that have the yeah. holes in them and just rotate. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. love yeah. that. Uh, in the 1700s, after heliocentrism and after telescopes had been invented and we had a better understanding of the actual shape of the solar system, we spent hundreds of years just trying to make better and better orreries. Mm-hmm. Um, better could mean bigger, but then you kind of have to sacrifice uh, some of the accuracy. Or um, better could mean more accurate, better could mean smoother movement mechanisms. Uh, a lot of them were um, driven by dials, but then after electricity was 
invented, they could have electronic orreries. And in 1903 is when we get the introduction of the modern, like, projection-based planetarium. Mm -hmm. It was 1903. There was a German engineer named Oskar von Miller, and he decided that he wanted to um, build a museum to celebrate science and technology in Munich in Germany. And it would have its very own dedicated astronomy section, which means it would have to have a planetarium. Like, it would just be... Sure. He would be remiss yeah. <laughs> if he didn't include this planetarium. And so it needed to be state of the art. He wanted it to have a mechanical orrery and a natural nighttime scene on the dome. He wanted it to incorporate everything that a planetarium had been known to do up until that point. They thought of different ideas. One was to put a bunch of light bulbs in the ceiling. Yeah. Like the, it would be an array of light bulbs and some of them would light up to be stars at different points of the year, um, but they also wanted some of them to be planets, which move faster on a, on a set sequence. And that was just really complicated before they had coding and, and machines sure. that could automate turning on and off the different light bulbs. Um, also, it was really heavy. <laughs> Um, And and the dome would physically have to move. And uh, the machine or the engine that could move a dome of that size was just louder than was comfortable for what they wanted to be, like a a nice performance space. Mm -hmm. And so someone came up with the idea of using projection. So what if we keep the dome still, but we project moving images onto it? And this is in the early 1900s. They're taking advantage of a brand new technology called projection. Yay! (laughs) Um, I did a little searching into the history of this technology, and it does have a long evolution all the way from shadow puppetry to um, this really bulky machine called the kinetoscope that would, it had this one little hole that like one person could look into at a time and you would see moving images on the other end of the machine. Um, But that's not quite projection because only one person can can see it at once and it's in this confined little box. It wasn't until 1895 that two French brothers, um, Lumaire is their last name. That's... I know, right? Isn't it so appropriate? <laughs> I'm like, that's either, either it's named after them or that's bizarrely appropriate. <laughs> um, no, because Loom, Loom has a further... Yeah, I think it goes back. Has an back. older etymology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, so wow, it's just really cool, appropriate, fun. like a dentist being called Toothman. That was their destiny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, the two Lumiere brothers, they invent a device called the cinematograph mm-hmm. in 1895. And it is the first thing that can uh, project images using light onto a, a distant screen with a, like a dial crank type thing. And so in 1913... Miller contracts a company called Zeiss to make the planetarium in the astronomy section, and they decide to use that projection technology, but they have to halt their operations from 1914 to 1918 for a little thing known as World War One. And uh, after the war in 1919, they get going with the whole projection system and this museum, it's the Museum of Science in Munich, uh, it opened on May 7th in 1925. And then Zeiss 
projection-based planetariums spread around the world. Uh, they put their first one in the U.S. in Chicago in 1930. That was the Adler Planetarium, which is still thriving. Uh, and by World War II, there were 25 Zeiss projector uh, planetariums around the world. Cool. And now there are a lot more than that, and they've updated with many models, and, and there's, there's a lot going on. Um, the Hayden Planetarium was inspired by the Adler Planetarium's projection-based um, system. It, it was this rich guy named Hayden who went to Chicago. He's from New York. He went to Chicago. He saw the planetarium. He came back, and people at the Museum of Natural History were trying to build a planetarium, but they didn't have the money in the grant from the government to make the, the museum um, to buy a German-built projection system because mm -hmm. the grant only worked for American-made projects. So Hayden was like, how much money do you need to uh, get this Zeiss projector? Here it is. Yeah. Uh, and now we have the Hayden Planetarium. In 1948, the first portable planetarium was unveiled in New England, and it was meant to be used by schools, libraries, and churches for educational trips. And now we have modern planetariums that are still kind of using the same technology that was uh, used in that first one in 1925. Uh, there are more than 350 permanent planetariums in the United States and more than 4,000 permanent planetariums worldwide. It's estimated that more than 142 million people visit planetaria every year. Cool. I got the, those statistics from the International Planetarium Society because there there are official organizations cool. of um, planetarians. They call themselves, which I I love, love. that. I love mm -hmm. that. That's kind of. I think that's a little less than I would have guessed. Yeah, um, it's actually not that many people. I guess um, they are usually on university campuses yeah. or in museums and science centers that have mm -hmm. um, admissions fees. Sure. Though some of them will have like open to the public days. Many universities, planetaria, don't have admissions fees. They'll yeah. usually have um, free shows that you can go to. But it is uh, an opt-in activity. Yes, yes. Um, and you have to know that it exists and know that it's going on and not have other things right. that are more Im important for you to do on your plate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> now I'm thinking, what can we do to make that number higher? I th hmm. I feel like it is an activity that once you're out of school, and if you're not pursuing this field, it's rare to go to. Yeah. So All we right. just need adult field trips. We need an adult field trip company. I th I think we just need to normalize going to a planetarium on a date. Yeah, I like that. That's a perfect date. It's no different friends. than a movie. Yeah, oh yeah, it's, I mean, it's some, sometimes it's better than a movie. Yeah. It really depends on the movie, but a movie can be so hit or miss. How do you I know did. your date's going to like the movie? That's true. Everyone's going to like that. Yeah, well, if there's someone you want to date. Yeah, well, I hope. <laughs> so it'll be a good test, too, listener. <laughs> mm. 
Hi, friends. It's Moya. Corinne is off holding some poor stranger's hair back in the shrubbery. I sincerely hope that all of your 2024s are off to a better start than theirs. Uh, But while Corinne is gone, I think it's a good time to take a minute and thank our patrons who support this show every single month. Thank you so much to our sun-like stars, Sharn Llewellyn, Lissa, Scott Reynolds, Ian O'Leary, and Tom T. It feels so good to have that list be getting longer. I hope you're enjoying your uh, solar gravitational fields and your active magnetic periods. We are we are in a solar magnetic activity high, friends. Not like the peak, but like we're getting there. Um, you too, you can support us. You can hear your name on the show and you can make it to our patron star chart all by supporting us on Patreon for just about $1 per episode. And now you can sign up for an annual membership, meaning you pay for a whole year up front, but you end up getting a 13% discount. That's 1% for every constellation along the sun's path in the sky. And that's a great deal for you, and it's great for us because we can rely on a whole year of support. Uh, You can find that star chart. You can find our Patreon info and more at our website, palebluepod.com. Or if you already know you want to support us financially, amazing, head right over to patreon.com slash palebluepod. And if you can't support us financially, that's totally fine. We love you. You're very much a part of the universe, so the universe loves you too. And there are other ways that you can support us. You can rate and review the show on whatever app you use. Please do. When I feel a little down, I want to hear the things you love about the show. And if you have some constructive feedback, I want to know ways that we can make the show better for you. So please uh, rate and review wherever you listen. And you can also share the show with your friends. That is a very effective way of helping podcasts. So uh, thank you. And speaking of recommending podcasts to help them grow, I want to recommend another show in the Multitude Collective. It is called Tell Me About It. It's a game show about proving the things you like are actually interesting. It's hosted by Adel Rafai, who you may have heard on Hello from the Magic Tavern and Hey Riddle Riddle, and Multitude's very own Eric Silver. Adel plays an eccentric billionaire who forces guests to come on the podcast and prove that their favorite thing is interesting and cool. And through a series of wild games and challenges put together by audio butler Eric Silver, guests are scored based on the quality of their answers or whatever Adel is feeling at the moment. It's very whose line is it anyway. Uh, He once gave me like a thousand points because I was very passionate about my love of exoplanets. You've all heard me talk about exoplanets. You You can understand why I got that many points. You can think of this show as podcasting Taskmaster or an in-depth conversation about something that your friend is super into mixed with the very fun thing of hunting humans for sport. And the high scoreboard is filled with some of your favorites in podcasting. I'm there. I'm pretty sure Corinne has recorded an episode. Janet Varney, Jenna Stieber, Matt Young, and more. New episodes come out every other Thursday, and the show is Tell Me About It. It's the most fun podcast run by a multi-billionaire. All right, Corinne has successfully gotten her new friend into a cab. We are going to get back to talking about Planetaria. These 4,000 planetariums worldwide, a lot of them use um, Zeiss hardware, uh, the 
physical projectors, uh, although there are definitely other companies on the scene. But there's a difference here between the hardware and the software. There is the projector, the physical um, machine that projects images onto the dome. And then there's the software, the coding in the computer that tells the planetarium projector how to visualize the data. And there mm -hmm. is a wealth of options for planetarium softwares out there. Um, they vary in what data they have access to, how they visualize that data, um, what operating system they can be used on. Stellarium is one of the more popular ones. Have you heard of Stellarium? I know that word, but I don't know more than that. Yeah, um, it is pretty established. It's been around for a while in many of the, the different sites use it. It's also free. Uh, and there's a baby version that you can use on your phone. So some people oh, have sure. Stellarium on their personal devices. Maybe that's how I know it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an, like you can go and visualize night sky data. It's pretty cool, um, but it is not the only option out there. Hayden Planetarium uses Digital Universe, which is a, a, another piece of software that they developed at the American Museum of Natural History, along with NASA and some other um, contractors. It is also free, and uh, you can go and like download it onto your personal machine if you have enough space and if you want to play around with the data. But I would recommend if you want something that you can play with and you want it to be um, good to use on your phone, I would recommend Celestia, which um, Celestia. was intentionally built to be used on Android and iOS devices. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, and these companies uh, use different types of uh, data catalogs, but they are all using reputable data because all of this data is publicly available, as it should be. Yeah. Um, yeah, the knowledge that scientists find, like it should be made publicly available. And the types of data that they use to put together these planetarium shows are the positions of stars, obviously, and then other things about those stars. What do they look like? How big are they? How bright? How hot are they? Things like that. Um, whether or not they have planets. We have information on planet surfaces in our own solar system. And so a lot of planetarium shows will take you on like a tour of the surface of Mars or something, which is so sick. Um, you can even do planetarium shows that teach you about the large-scale structure of the universe. Those mm -hmm. shows would use data from something like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which is this like huge multi-generational survey of the whole sky going like far out into the universe so that you start to see the cosmic webs of all of the super clusters of galaxies collecting mm -hmm. together. And so there really are so many different types of data that you can show in a planetarium show. Yeah. And and I love that because people real like individuals and companies will take the time to put together curate like an hour long or 30 minute long whatever planetarium show. You can go to um, a lecture or a show at your local planetarium and it will probably be some combination of a pre-prepared um, show that they can kind of just like press play on and it looks very pretty and it's educational mm -hmm. and there's a narrator on the dome but they might also steer the dome themselves. They might um, manually control it and take you to a certain star cluster while they're doing a lecture. Yes, uh, yes. In grad school I had the opportunity to learn how to work the dome at the Hayden Planetarium and I just, I just never, just never happened. 
all that's <laughs> yeah but like you, you do have to go through training to yeah, use yeah. the the, the well, software program at the space center it wasn't a thing all of us knew how to fly essentially <laughs> so um but that was really fun because in the classes some of them would be kind of like you know set it and watch but some were mm -hmm. like really kind of interacting with what was resonating with students to take them to see or take them to show and yeah. all that it was great yeah there are um i know of a few science communicators who really in astronomy anyway really get a lot of their practice at planetarium shows oh cool yeah I mentioned the uh, the IPS before, and just like a, a little bit more about their history because I think it's so cute, and I don't mean that in any sort of like patronizing way. That mm -hmm. there is an official society for planetarians that they get together and they have meetings and they talk about very important planetaria related content. I just love that. That is very cute. Cute. And, uh, okay, so <laughs> in the 1950s, planetarium leaders started doing, I guess, more informal meetups. They had their first international conference in 1959 at Hayden Planetarium in New York. In 1970, 300 planetarians gathered at University of Michigan and created the International Society of Planetarium Educators, or ISPE. And a few years later, that became the International Planetarium Society, or IPS. IPS now has more than 500 members from more than 50 different countries around the world, and there are more than 20 regional societies that are affiliated with IPS. So there's an African Planetarium Association, there is an Association of Brazilian uh, Planetariums, etc., etc. Uh, there are like 20 of those around the world. Last year, oh my god, it's 2024, <laughs> last year uh, IPS put out a white paper on the value of planetariums in education and they listed the following benefits of planetariums. There's immersive learning, especially with those new fancy like super HD IMAX type planetarium domes, like you really feel like you are in the the universe you feel like you are on mars you feel like you are zipping through the milky way galaxy it like it feels like you're there and that just creates a different level of of learning yeah. and interaction yeah i'm sure mm -hmm. um it also has this this benefit that maybe a lot of people don't think about but spatial freedom is how they put it in the white paper um because you can manipulate the orientation uh, you can manipulate the angle that you are viewing things from. Mm. You can really experience things from all sorts of perspectives. Yeah. And when you can separate yourself from the forced perspective of like your physical body and you can yeah. imagine or you can visualize what would the surface of Mars look like from all of these different angles or um, how does the solar system look different if I'm standing on Earth versus if I'm standing on Jupiter versus standing on the sun or like mm -hmm. a, a moon orbiting one of those things. Like being able to shift your perspective helps you grasp more abstract concepts like gravity in a three-dimensional space or mm -hmm. um, orbital mechanics. Like it really just does yeah. helps you see things in a different way, literally. Yeah, and I think just the reminder that stars are not flat, <laughs> like like we're looking at the flat sky, but just kind of living in that suspended um, distance between like celestial objects. It's that's always been my favorite part of like a planetarium show is like when we kind of turn around or like interact and things are in. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The turning around. Um, there was a like the the 
newer models of this projection software will have the ability to look like if you're talking about the Mars surface again, you can look down at the Mars surface and you can look up from the Mars surface. Mm. Like you can do you can do both and they can toggle between the two views. And yeah, that, that makes a difference. Cool. Um, there is the inspiration and wonder and awe factor that absolutely can't be dismissed when we're talking about planetariums. And then the fourth one that they mentioned is that it kind of gives the opportunity to do a sort of laboratory experiment in a way. Um, astronomy is not naturally a lab-based or experiment-based science. It is an observation-based science. We cannot mm -hmm. go and manipulate stars to do our physics experiments. But in a planetarium show, you can work with a, a group of students or, or audience members. You can ask them questions and see what they think would happen under different scenarios. Like how, how long do you think it would take a star to burn through all of its fuel? Or how many planets do you think this star of this mass might form? Like mm -hmm. they can ask those types of questions and they're not doing novel research in these, but it's a good pedagogical tool to be able to use the planetarium show to fast forward time. Yeah. 10 million years so that you can yeah. or 10 billion years so you can see the sun burn through all of its fuel or you mm -hmm. can see you can like travel to different parts of the galaxy and you can see how many stars form five planets versus one planet and mm -hmm. and like that is a type of thought experiment that you can do visually with sure. a planetarium that really helps people learn yeah yeah that visual representation is so much easier for me to grasp an understanding of whatever we're trying to show. Mm -hmm. I, I've always loved them. Are you a visual learner more of? I think I am. I used to think I was like an auditory learner, but I think like most people, it just needs to be some kind of hands-on demo. Yeah. I've got it. Yeah, I mean, most people, it's like a combination of, of everything will help yeah. cement it. Yeah. Yeah, I had an, <laughs> I think I might have talked about this before, I had an SAT like prep. We. I wasn't affording like, amazing tutors or anything for this but I did get this thing at Barnes I remember we went to the Barnes and Noble and I bought this like workbook that was a CD of like vocabulary word songs so I would like listen songs. to these these songs that had SAT vocabulary words in them <laughs> so then ever since I did that I was like oh I must be a auditory like I must need learn through my ears <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it was crazy oh, they were like like they had a chorus they had like real like people worked hard on this yeah but like every other line would include a vocabulary word and the definition oh my god do you remember I don't remember any of them but I wish I did I also got these like um novels that had like the vocabulary words in the story mm -hmm. and one of them was this girl went undercover at a high school but she was a police officer because she was trying to like find a drug dealer or something right it's like 21 jump street yes okay and her character motivation was that like she lost her best friend to an overdose and that best friend's name was corinne and i felt so cool it was just so insane. But I was like, I'm in the book. <laughs> Clearly, I have a mental disorder, but <laughs> I was learning so much and I was in the story. You were, you, you don't have main character energy. You have like murdered character yes, energy exactly. or like dead character or, like, energy. It's in like a in Monsters Inc. <laughs> when Mike Wazowski's like, I can't believe I'm on the cover of a magazine. But his face is completely covered by like the price sticker. Mm -hmm. That was me. It was like, I can't believe I'm in this book. <laughs> I'm like the worst, the saddest but thing to be. 
you know, for for the girlies with uncommon names, it is really exciting I, anytime you, never you see, see it. it. You never yeah. see it. And I'm sure it was like spelled slightly different or something. Mm-hmm. But I was like, wow. That's the only one I remember. And yeah. because I like made it about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the literal only other time I've seen Moya in in media was uh was Farscape. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a living ship, and there's mm-hmm. a season where the ship gets pregnant, which was very weird for me. <laughs> sure. Oh my god. <laughs> there was a Corinne on The Bachelor once. Ooh. She was the villain of the season, though, and I felt weird. But she oh. did start selling these hats that said "Make America Corinne Again" <laughs> or "Make Corinne Great Again" or something. Okay. And I was like, I think it was "Make America Corinne Again." That makes even less sense. It would have been funnier if it was "Make Corinne Great Again." Mm-hmm. Either way, I was like, I can't buy this because it's insane, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, how come, damn, the first time there's merch with my <laughs> name spelled correctly on it? Because, like, I could never get those, like, keychains on, like, yeah. a vacation or anything. Anyway, great way to learn is through SAT country songs. <laughs> you didn't say they were country songs. Well, they were, like, every genre. There was a rap song. Oh. There was a country song. There was, like, a pop song. Oh, my gosh. I wish I still had it. I need it. to look this up afterwards. I hope they're on like in insert music streaming. It was called Rock the SAT. Rock the SAT. <laughs> Thirteen slamming tunes on one tricked out CD with a study guide crammed with song lyrics. <gasps> no, they were trying so hard to appeal to the youth. Yes, and here I mean here I am at at the Barnes and Noble buying it. There you go. And you got into college, so it and worked. I got in. Wake up and smell the music. <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> Wow, this is what I need to copyright for. <laughs> wow, I'm never going to get over that. Um, back to planetariums. I thought it'd be fun to do a little tour of some of the superlative planetariums in, in the world, but then I could only think of two and a half superlatives that I could actually find real <laughs> answers for. Perfect. So, so here you go. You know, it's early. It's <laughs> We've been up all night. <laughs> this is the best I could do. Uh, the oldest functioning planetarium. I don't suppose you know what or where oh it is. Oh my if gosh. You could guess, if you could guess um, a continent. Um, I, probably Europe. Okay. Okay, great. Yes. Can you guess a country? Oh, gosh. Italy. You know what? Everything's close over there, so close. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is the Isa Isinga Planetarium in the Netherlands. Oh, I wouldn't... I didn't guess that. No, but it was <laughs> close. Um, it was built in 1781, and it was based on a model that this dude, um, Isa Isinga, built in his living room. And there's a wild story here. So earlier in the century, there was a preacher who made some weird predictions that bad things would happen around the time of planetary conjunctions when when a lot of planets would line up. And people flipped their shit. Oh, they no. were so concerned about this preacher's predictions that Isa Isinga decided to build a big orrery in his living room that showed accurate positions of the planets in the sky so that people would be less afraid because they could see the positions um, on his orrery. And then he scaled it up and um, put it into this, this 
bigger ceiling type thing. It's now a museum. And in 1781, it opened and it is still open today. You can go to this planetarium and it it's like a beautiful blue ceiling with these golden orbs that move on tracks above you. Oh, you can also it. watch a feed of it online. <laughs> oh, um, I love and, that. <laughs> and, and I don't know if it's like a live feed, but you can watch a video of it moving and then there's an option to speed it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is it included in, in this week's research notes for patrons. If you just want to watch the oldest planetarium in the world move. That's very cool. Because I, I do kind of want to do that. Wait, I Google imaged it and it just looks like a, like a regular cute old building. Yeah. Really it is. fun. Love mm-hmm. it. And it doesn't look like it moves. You have to really sit there and like wait for a little bit to tell that they're moving because That's they, they, move, want you they to speed move slowly. It up. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site in September of 2023. Netherlands is really proud of it. Um, They're like, I think it's maybe like the 19th site um, in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. So that's the oldest and still operating. The biggest functional planetarium, where do you think it is, Corinne? Biggest? I want to say the U.S. Because we have big everything. (laughs) It's in Texas. (laughs) It's in in Texas. (laughs) You would think so. Uh, okay, so the according to the, the Guinness Book of World Records, uh, love that. Uh huh. The Nagoya City Science Museum in Japan has the biggest planetarium in the world by size of the dome. It is okay. thirty-five meters in diameter, and it seats three hundred and fifty people. There are technically smaller domes that f- seat more people, oh, but it's okay. the biggest by volume. Okay, cool. It opened in 1962, and it was the biggest by volume. It it, it really did. It got into the Guinness Book of World Records and everything. Uh And then in 2021, China opened the Shanghai Planetarium with a dome. uh, They say it's 38,000 square feet. It's like this giant complex. And if I did the math correctly, which honestly, I might not have done, but if I did the math correctly... Then the dome is 200 meters across. That's very large. (laughs) It's very large. (laughs) It's very large. And it cost them $95 million to build. No. No. Mm -hmm. That's so much money. So much money in 2021 monies. It it, it cost them a lot. That's like today money. That's today money, (laughs) which I guess is way better than it costing $95 million in like 1950 money. Totally. But it's big and it's expensive and it is gorgeous. So um, I guess it's worth it. (laughs) And then I wanted to do the most expensive. But I think I I didn't have the, like, I can't. You're not going to. Yeah. Um, So then I was like, what's the cheapest planetarium? Um, Not to build, but like, what's the cheapest planetarium that you can get? And so I looked up the prices for those inflatable, transportable Mm -hmm. planetariums. And, you know, since... I'm not really willing to, to shop on one of those like very clearly like rip off cheaply made sure. um, sites for for a dome. If you want one that's like real, the cheapest one you can get is about a thousand dollars. Okay, yeah, that's a lot, but not ninety five million. <laughs> not ninety five million, yeah. So if you want, you can you can spend a thousand dollars and get a planetarium to put in your living room. Yeah, or or in your school. Oh, that too. Yeah, that cool. Too. Yes, there are children. That too. There oh, are yes, children. the children. The children. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, yeah, so that's that's everything I learned about um, about planetariums. I really want to go. Mm-hmm. I have to put that on the New Year resolution. Yeah, that'd be fun. We could we could maybe try and go to one together. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it'd be nice to wrap up the episode with our like favorite planetarium memories. Ooh. Um, Obviously, any time I was in the planetarium with the Space Center is special to me. But I also nannied for years in New York. And one of the kids I nannied was obsessed with pretty much everything at the Museum of Natural History, <laughs> but especially the like anything space related. Mm. Um, and I took her to a planetarium show. And we, she lived nearby, so we walked there and we walked back. And she must have been in, like, first grade. So, like, everything was new to her and everything uh-huh. was exciting. And it was really sweet. That does sound sweet. Hayden Planetarium has so many magical moments it associated really with it. I did see something that I didn't look further into that said Hayden might be the most visited planetarium Ooh, in the world. Yeah. Which I, I, th- I would buy. I would buy that. Yeah. I buy that. I would buy that factoid. I would not mm-hmm. buy Hayden Planetarium. That would I be would. very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going to do with my money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when Corinne and I met, she was a billionaire uh, <laughs> hosting astronaut training, and she's not anymore because she has purchased Hayden Planetarium. Exactly. <laughs> my favorite planetarium memory is also with the Hayden. Uh, I didn't grow up going to planetarium shows, really. Like, I wasn't interested in astronomy until college. And even then, it wasn't the stargazing. It was the data that I was into. So, I, like, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I've not really been a planetarium person. But one of the most life-changing moments of my entire existence happened right outside of Hayden Planetarium um, in the research offices for the astronomy faculty at AMNH. And it's uh, like on the second or third floor. You can, it's like right next to the planetarium. You look out from Mm -hmm. their offices and you see the dome. And in those offices, I got the call that I got my first book deal. Oh my God, how fun! And I fell to the floor. (laughs) Yay! Oh, I love that. Yeah, I fell to the floor and I looked up through the window and I saw the Hayden Planetarium, like the big, the big ball outside of it, and I was like, "Damn, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it." That's <laughs> as so a science communicator. Yeah, I um, yeah. when I got my book deal, I was working my data entry temp job, and I remember I went to stand by the elevators because I thought it would be like more private, and it was, mm-hmm. but I. I was standing and I was like, I need to sit down. Like, this is crazy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then I was like buzzing. Like, and then I went back to my little cubicle and I was like, it's like that meme of like, they don't know that I. (laughs) (laughs) How are you supposed to do anything after that? I know. I think I did leave early. There was, I also remember a call when my book release got pushed like a year Mm -hmm. and I like could not stop crying. Yeah. I was fine ultimately but in that moment in a really new york sweet moment like a woman came up to me and was like are you all right and, wow. and i'm like new york really is kind like there are when people you need here it who, most yeah yeah oh that's beautiful well listeners i hope wherever you are you look up at the stars tonight or you go to a planetarium show soon and remember that you are space yeah you are bye
Pale Blue Pod was created by Moya McTeer and Corinne Caputo with help from the Multitude Productions team. Our theme music is by Evan Johnston and our cover art is by Shay McMullen. Our audio editing is handled by the incomparable Misha Stanton. Stay in touch with us and the universe by following at Pale Blue Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Or check out our website, palebluepod.com. We're a member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like Pale Blue Pod, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. If you want to support Pale Blue Pod financially, join our community over at patreon.com slash palebluepod. For just about $1 per episode, you get a shout out on one of our shows and access to director's commentary for each episode. The very best way, though, to help Pale Blue Pod grow is to share it with your friends. So send this episode, this link, to one person who you think will like it, and we will appreciate you for forever. Thanks for listening to Pale Blue Pod. You'll hear us again next week. Bye. Bye.